Why don't you turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, please, if you would. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, and the message entitled, The Call to the Ministry. We want to begin our series on the distinctives of the Calvary Chapel by looking at the call to ministry and show that it is based upon the scriptures, because that's important. We always have to be able to relate that what we believe, what we practice is scriptural in its context. Often Calvary Chapel pastors are considered to be uneducated in formal training. But so were the disciples of Jesus by the words of the Pharisees, which was really an ignorant statement because they spent three and a half years with Jesus. That's, that's worth a lot better than an education. Anytime. Now, we're not against education in and of itself, but um, when you get it, get over it, and then keep going, as I've said often. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy here in 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 14, as he, and he reveals three important facts about the nature of his call to ministry. And we want to use this as a basis and work from there. Let me read here, verse 12 through 14. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, and I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The three important facts about the nature of the call of ministry and this applies to every person that's ever called. Is here. First, the call was divine. Verse 12. Second, the call was despite his life. The beginning of verse 13. And then the call was a gift. The last part of 13 and 14. It was divine despite his life. And it was a gift. Let's begin here with the nature of Paul's call and ministry was divine. Notice verse 12. Paul thanked Christ Jesus our Lord for committing to his trust the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Listen to his words. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is uh, referring to the previous verse here as the reason that prompted his thanksgiving. Paul's always thanking God for everything, be it for the people, the uh, provisions, the wisdom, the comfort, so on and so forth. Paul's gratitude reveals that he considered himself a privileged man to be saved and to, here's the key, serve. Ministry is service. When somebody writes me a letter and they say, Reverend Xavier Rees, I know they don't know me. Because the word reverend only appears one time, a couple of times, and it's to God, not to men. The basis of ministry, the word is diakonia, or diakonos, whichever form you want to use. And it means a waiter on tables, as we'll see. I am nothing but a glorified table boy. A waiter on tables to serve you food, okay? There's nothing reverent about me. I am just like you, among you, from you, one of you. Very important. Now... Paul thanks Christ, Jesus our Lord here, rather than his usual to God the Father. Both are God and are of one mind, and both were involved in Paul's calling, if you follow the um, history of Paul's writings. Now, notice Paul was 
enabled by God, he says here. He enabled me. Paul uses the word enable here, which means to strengthen, with the idea of equipping a person equal to the task to clothe, if you will, with him, to clothe you, to enable you. Paul used it for every situation of life to which he was called, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. All those things that he called them to, not what he wanted to do, but God's direction. Paul used it for the uh, power of warfare in Ephesians 6.11 to enable us against the wiles of the enemy, the power, the might of God. The Spirit of the Lord clothed himself with Gideon, if you remember, in Judges 6.34. So the idea is that God is the one that's doing the work through the man. And the man must be very conscious of this, lest he rob God glory, lest he boast in himself, lest he thinks that the ministry is successful because of him. This is sadly the picture of too many ministries today. And I'm sure in the past, men have not changed. We're all vain. We're all sinners, and we all love to have people tell us how great we are. Now, Paul is not talking about his sufferings. The context is to be enabled for ministry. Paul is talking about God equipping him adequately to commit to his trust the glorious gospel, not by anything he had possessed or learn. The message of the gospel is not of this world, ladies and gentlemen. It is directly from heaven. It is not philosophy. It is not psychology. It is not any other religious dogma. It is a message directly from heaven, distinct from man's learnings. It's divine. Paul's trust was in Christ in his sufficiency. Not in himself, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5. Our sufficiency is not in of ourselves, but of God and in Christ who we trust. He says that God has placed this treasure in the Zerzan vessel that the excellency may be of, of God, not of ourself, of Christ, 2 Corinthians. There, verse chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Because men love to glory. The, the vessel has to be broken. Always realize your humility before God. It is God who's doing the work. I am amazed every week, every time I stand behind the pulpit, what God does. I'm amazed every time I walk in, I see people here. I am not telling you this because I think I'm spiritual. I'm telling you the facts. That God would be so gracious to continue to bring people to learn the word of God, to be equipped, to have their lives turned around, to be witnesses for his glory. It's an incredible privilege. The grace of God was sufficient, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. His weakness. My grace is sufficient. Paul, from the beginning, counted all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he counted all his, you know, he was learning under the feet of Gamaliel, right? The only complaint Gamaliel had is he couldn't find enough books for Paul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a, a tribe of Benjamin, you know, his contemporaries. He smoked them. And he says, all those things, I consider it a pile of manure. For the excellency of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Wow. Perspective. The Lord stood with Paul when all forsook him and delivered him out of the mouth of the lion, he said in 2 Timothy 4, 17, right before he lost his head. Enablement for ministry. 
And yet we have to be careful because men always want attention. They say, oh, you know, I had no idea, and you know, and then God. And so I yielded and I just gave up all that. You gave, you know what I gave up when he called me into ministry? Hell. What did you give when you got saved? Hell. None of us have ever given anything up for Jesus Christ. Not a thing. Notice still in 12, Paul was considered adequate because he counted me faithful. That's his adequacy. Paul cannot be saying God saw that he would be faithful and that was the reason God called him for it would contradict what he has just said about being enabled. The word counted means to deem or account or to think. The word faithful simply means trustworthy or true. Paul is saying that God counted him faithful by virtue that he enabled him for the gospel. He told the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. You and I are mere vessels. And in ministry, we are mere vessels. He told the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why are you boasting? 1 Corinthians 4, 7. See, Paul was amazed that God would trust him with the gospel. Seeing himself as unworthy. Seeing himself as not fit in and of himself. When God arrested him on the Damascus Road, Paul was transform forever and he had to always keep that perspective I wish there was a cruise control in Christianity there is none you know three speeds used to be the standard transmission then four speeds came along then there was a fifth overdrive now we even have six speeds well Christianity is a thousand speeds there is no cruise control. It's not an automatic. Notice Paul was put into ministry by God. The word putting means to place, establish, or appoint. He had nothing to do with it directly. He had no inclination towards it. But it doesn't mean that he was forced or that he did God a great favor not what he's communicating here's the word ministry diaconio it denotes servile work a waiter on tables that's what a minister is he's not one to be adored or praised or be given gifts to or 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 you know there, there's there's ministries that have their their people go to their houses and do their work for them they think that they're slaves. I know ministers that treat their people like, like slaves. Horrible. Did they forget what God did for them? Did they forget that God called them in the ministry and God will hold them accountable how they treat the people of God? Amazing to me. The word here is used for domestic work, the gospel and the church and officers. In its various forms. The apostle saw himself as a servant of God and the people. There's the key. The minister must see himself a servant to God. Then he will be the proper minister to the people. First God. 
If you just want to be a servant of the people, you'll bend to the people. You want to be a servant to God first, and but God to the people. Keeping that humble understanding. Notice God commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus as a chosen vessel, as we said earlier. In Acts 9, verse 1 through 25, to bear the name, uh, his name to the Gentiles. To bear his name to kings. And to bear his name to the children of Israel, those three groups. Paul just was called sovereignly by God. That wasn't his intent, as we'll see. Paul declared his commission to the Jerusalem mob. You remember when he was in the temple accused falsely in Acts 22, verse 6 through 15. And he said to them that he was a chosen vessel to know God's will. Chosen to see the just one, Jesus Christ. Chosen to hear the voice of his mouth and chosen to be his witness to all men of what Paul had seen and heard. So once again, the message is not our own. It's been given to us. The message is not earth-based or source. It's from heaven. It's divine. And Paul made this very, very clear. It wasn't because he was so brilliant. Paul declared his commission to Agrippa in Acts 26, 12 through 23. And let me just give you some verses. In 17, he says, For I have appeared um, to make you a minister. And he's talking about Jesus Christ. They're on the road to Damascus. A minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and the things which I will reveal to you. Again, the revelation is from God. The Bible is not just a normal book. It's God's revelation of himself. In 17, it says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I send you. Underline that. I send you. If you're called by God, you're anointed by God, and you're sent. The problem is too often we're looking for men to send us so they can back us up financially, and that's why so many ministries fail. Because they're trusting men and not God, to do the work in the heart of the people. In 18, he says, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, not from the power, uh, but from the power of Satan to God. And they may receive forgiveness for their sins and inherit among those who are sanctified by faith in him. So the crux of the gospel, men and women are lost, blinded by the God of this age, and the gospel releases us by the preaching to convict us and allow us to be able to repent from our sins, that God would save us and make us servants of God. Paul says he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision and, and God enabled him from 19 to 23. He was faithful to it. He took no glory. In fact, Paul declared his commission to the Galatians. If you remember when we studied in chapter 1 particularly, um, it say, Paul said that God called him the, to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. He being in Arabia and Damascus. Because remember, he got saved. He spent three and a half years, three, three years in Arabia. Jesus was teaching him. And he was going back and forth to Damascus. And then 
King Regis wanted to take his head off, so they let him out a window in a basket, and he scurried over to Jerusalem. When he went to Jerusalem after three years, he preached the gospel, and he got too hot to handle. The Jews were going to kill him, so the church sent him on an R&R to Tarsus, and there he remained for about nine years. And you know what? No one saw hair nor hide of him, but they only heard the one that used to kill and persecute Christians. Now he's glorifying Jesus Christ, and people come to Christ, and they gave God glory. Paul was not in it to be promoted or to be acknowledged, but he re, he would he just went up there, secluded, isolated, He's, just to be up there by himself preaching the gospel. He wasn't looking for accolades, understanding he was a servant of God. Moody is credited with speaking to a hundred million persons about spiritual matters. Wow. Not a high school graduate himself. He founded a vast educational system that among many accomplishments had turned out one of ten American Protestant missionaries. Amazing the grace of God, what it can do. The majority of Calvary Chapel pastors were called by God through the Lord Jesus Christ in the Jesus movement that later was called that by Time magazine and the newspapers and that. And um, it was the late 60s, early 70s. As they accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and responded to his voice to be called into ministry, even as Samuel in 1 Samuel 3 did. Samuel, Samuel. And he went in a few times with uh, Eli. Eli says, no, next time God says that, say, hear your servants, uh, listen, speak, Lord. God calls individuals, not man. God helped the man that is sent out by man. God helped the man who is looking for man to approve him. They began to see it as God who was sufficient to enable them for ministry, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. It wasn't by their person. It wasn't by their own abilities. The majority of Calvary Chapel pastors did not have a seminary education or degrees. They simply sat under the teaching of the late Pastor Chuck Smith's ministry or listened just on tapes. And they grew, they developed, they matured. And the Holy Spirit called them to ministry. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 on to 16 says, I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. That's for here and now. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. They're spiritually discerned. But we have the mind of Christ. So each person is responsible for God's calling. No one can say to anybody that God called me. I'm the only one that can say that. And then time is going to reveal whether it's true or not. There are some now who have degrees. And while there is nothing wrong with education and we're not against it, the problem is that too often you start leaning on that or you give the glory to your education rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. The emphasis should always be on God's calling, his anointing, his giving you the spiritual gifts necessary, and that he sends you out. That is the emphasis. The pastors of Calvary Chapel know that God called them into the ministry apart from any human qualification even as Isaiah, and Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. Even as Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, I am but a child. But God called him. 
God enabled them. God anointed them. There's no room for boasting. Glory. They began attending church. That's all we did. We heard the gospel. We got saved. We started attending church and serving. Being a witness for Jesus. That's it. My brother and I, we had Kung Fu Studios. That's how we made our living. And God saved us. And we'd have Bible studies there afterwards. And God just started adding. And God just started doing a work. We never even had any idea that God was going to put us in ministry. That wasn't our goal. That wasn't our thought. Pastors were guided by the Lord to start a Bible study outside the church. And it turns into a church. This church began with three people. George Guterres, his wife, and Rita, his mother-in-law, over in Hidalgo Street on Alhambra. March of 1980. God just started. I, I, didn't, I went out there to just do a Bible study. I didn't go out there to start a church. God just developed it. We started in a home and then, you know, a little storefront there in, 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 in Alhambra and then the uh, Masonic Lodge and, you know, there was a woman's club. There was uh, the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There was the cockroach-infested theater and everything else. God developed the church. They didn't attempt to convince or force people to come. Calvary Chapel pastors. They just taught. The spirit did the bringing. God was doing the work, confirming the call of the individual. As he provided the finances. As he opened up and gave locations. As he provided the resources. Directed the direction. The philosophy of Pastor Chuck Smith was where God guides, he provides. Once again, we take an offering on Sunday, but we try to do it as general and as quiet as possible, and we do them, that's it. But we, no one can ever blame us of ever trying to pressure them for money. We never have, we never will. We live within our means, and if the money doesn't come in, then we don't do certain things. That's it. And we go to prayer to God. Because if such a philosophy that we proclaim, then we should be living by it, right? It's just that simple. So the nature of Paul's call into ministry was divine as the call of Calvary Chapel pastors. Now, keep in mind, every movement begins well. It's whether you continue. Pastor Chuck always says, rarely does a movement ever go to a second generation. He always wondered if this movement would. We'll be tracking that as we move through the series. Notice, secondly, the nature of Paul's call to ministry was despite his life. 13. Paul was a former blasphemer, although I was a formerly a blasphemer. The word blasphemer denotes evil, injurious speech. Usually against God and the things of God, the emphasis is upon words. The Old Testament record of God's penalty for blasphemy was stoning to death, Leviticus 24, 10 through 23. You remember Stephen was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and the law. And they stoned him to death in Acts 6, 10 through um, 14. These Judaizers were fervent in the law and fervently opposed to Jesus Christ. See, some of the most fervent 
and radical people are religious people. Christians don't kill people because they don't believe like we tell them. Religious people kill Christians. I've never gotten mad at anybody who's rejected the gospel. I never said, I'll get you, sucker. I pray for you. But religious people, you tell them only Jesus Christ is the only way. They'll kill you in certain countries. Paul was probably indicating here that he spoke evil words concerning the person of Jesus Christ. There were already a lot of different things that, that were being said about Jesus. You can see them through the gospel, declaring Jesus was a mere man like any other, John five eighteen, Declaring Jesus was the illegitimate son of Mary in John eight forty one, Declaring that Jesus had not died, but that his disciples had stolen his body at night in Matthew 28, 13 through 15. Probably many, many other things. But Paul was probably speaking evil words concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Because when you're saying a person's God, that offends people. Declaring that he was not God in the flesh, contrary to John 1.14, that the word became flesh. That he is the visible form of the invisible God in Colossians 1, 16 through 18. Declaring he was not virgin born, perhaps, in Matthew 1, 20 through 25. Yet the scripture says he was, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3, 15, Isaiah 7, 14. Declaring that he did not fulfill the law. Yet he did, Romans 10, 4 says. Blameless. Declaring he did not have power to forgive sins. That's a big one. Matthew 1, 21. But that's what he was born. His name is Emmanuel. He should save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. You see, Paul compelled Christians to blaspheme Jesus in Acts 26, 11. He forced them. Paul was not a nice man. Brilliant man. Enemy number one to the church. Now notice Paul was a former persecutor, he says. I was formerly a persecutor. The word persecutor comes from the word to flee, to pursue with the idea of terror and suffering, with intent to murder and kill. The word appears only this time in the New Testament in this form, and Paul's emphasis here is not on so much on words, but now on deeds. Paul consented to the stoning of Stephen, as we said in Acts 7, 57 through chapter 8, verse 3. And he brought severe persecution to the church and scattered them throughout Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Paul wanted to kill Christians. That's what he did, as we're going to see. He persecuted the church severely. Paul obtained letters from the high priest in Acts 9, 1 and 2. To imprison those on the way. That's what they were called first. Christians were called those on the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. The first time they were called Christian was at Antioch. Paul and Barnabas were teaching the church. Paul revealed to Agrippa the measure of the extreme hatred he had for Christians thinking that he must do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth in Acts 26, 9. Paul was trying to destroy the church, which is impossible. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. For this reason, Paul considered himself to be the least of apostles, 
not worthy to be called an apostle, for he persecuted the church of God, he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Paul never forgot what he used to be. This is one of the biggest mistakes of ministers. They forget what they were before Christ saved them. And they get carried away with themselves. They look at their life with colored glasses. They go from being servants to being lords. Woe to that person. I've seen it firsthand, ladies and gentlemen, and the movement. It's ugly. Notice Paul was a former insolent man, he says, also. The phrase insolent man identifies one who is uplifted in pride, insulting and um, shaming others spitefully. This is easy to do as a natural person because we're ruled by our pride. Paul has revealed what he used to do in word and deed, but here he is revealing the heart of the problem. Ready? Attitude. Attitude is always a greater problem than the, de- the words or the deeds. The words and the deeds are only the manifestation of the attitude, the perspective. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Your child can do his chores in the house, take care of his room with a good attitude or bad attitude. Which one you like better? Simple. This, is, this word is found only one other time. It's in Romans 130. Paul in Romans uses this word to identify one of many who are under God's judgment and worthy of death. Paul was a spiritual bully, scaring and terrorizing the church in Judea and Samaria, we've seen in Acts 8.1. He saw himself as a defender of the law, even if it meant going to Damascus to bring back Christians in Acts 9.1-3. through 3. Paul delighted in the punishment, imprisonment, persecution, causing them to blaspheme, bringing them to Jerusalem in chains, even casting his vote against them to put them to death, both men and women. Acts 22, 4-5 and 26, 10-11. Paul killed Christians. Wow. Would you call somebody who killed your family to be a minister? You see, the message is is not from this earth, is it? The ministry is not from this earth. It's God-directed. Totally different. The nature of his ministry under the law was man-centered. He was taught at the feet of Gamaliel. He was an upstanding citizen according to the religious world. He earned his reputation of the tribe of Benjamin. A Pharisee of Pharisees, zealous in the law. He smoked his contemporaries. But once again, when he came to Christ, he found those things just a pile of rubbish and manure. Compared to the excellency of knowledge of Jesus Christ. Many years ago, John Newton, the converted slave trader who became a preacher and a Christian poet, lay upon his deathbed. A young clergyman came to see him and expressed deep regret at the prospect of losing so eminent a laborer in the Lord's vineyard. The venerable servant of God replied, quote, 
True, I am going on before you, but you'll soon come after me. When you arrive, uh, our friendship will no doubt cause you to inquire for me. But I can tell you already where you'll most likely find me. I will be sitting at the feet of the thief who Jesus saved in his dying moments at the cross. Although a distinguished man, Newton felt with Paul that he could only class himself among the chief of sinners who have been saved through marvelous grace. Ladies and gentlemen, you must begin there and you must end there with the last breath of your life. Much more ministers. In the small cemetery of a parish churchyard in all in the England stands a granite tombstone with the following inscription. John Newton, clerk, rich in the mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed the priest of faith he had once labored to destroy. Wow. End of quote. This fitting testimonial was written by Newton himself prior to his death. He never forgot who he was. And I've known too many pastors and Christians who have forgotten what they were before Christ. The majority of Calvary Chapel pastors were most likely former blasphemers, as I am sure they never even contemplated to become Jesus freaks. That would be the last thing on their mind. And God, by his merciful grace, poured out his spirit and did a work that astonished everyone. Pastor Chuck was the first one to tell you that it was not him. But people didn't believe it. Though he taught it for over 50-some years. And so people are trying to replicate that movement in a different form now. Man-made. God help us. There's a lot of ways that um, in our old life we could blaspheme God and do many things. I'm sure all of us, without Christ, though we were religious, also did that. But many of these pastors, I'm sure, denied Jesus Christ of his human perfection, probably his deity, probably declaring that the resurrection uh, they didn't really believe or whatever it is. I mean, certainly... Pastors do that. 50% of denominations don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, that Jesus rose from the dead and stuff like that, and they're teaching people. And so they're pumping out um, non-believing Christians. And that's why we have the condition of the church the way it is. One of the reasons. It's amazing. Every manner of sin will be forgiven, even words against Jesus, except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 31 through 32 says... Because the Holy Spirit is the one who turns on the light to the revelation of God's word to make it true. You go against the revelation of God's word, you're fighting against God. It's real simple. Most Calvary Chapel pastors were not open to Christianity or Jesus as their Savior. Some of them opposed it passionately. Some were um, drug dealers. 
I know one who smuggles drugs from South America all the time. <laughs> Called to be in the ministry. Others were straight-laced individuals. All of the staff here at Calvary Chapel, Pasadena, every one of us was in the world, seen. The party life, everything else. And then God saved us. All of us had secular jobs. Mario was a taper. Tony was a painter. Fernando was a machinist. Henry worked at the Greek theater. All of us. And God saved us and brought us all together. And built the church. An amazing thing. Calvary chapels are not a denomination, nor do we want to be one. At least I don't anymore. This mind changes. This mindset is changing. At the same time, we don't oppose denominations. But as we move through the series, we'll look at some of the distinctions. We're not opposed to denominations. There's some people that just would be sitting here saying, man, this church is dead. There's no movie of the Holy Spirit because they want, you know, backflips and swinging by the chandeliers. Okay? They would be uncomfortable here, right? Each Calvary Chapel pastor is independent from the others. And God alone has to prove that his hand is upon that work through the time. As he opens the doors for ministry, brings people, provides the funds, finds the locations. Each Calvary Chapel pastor does not have to report to a headquarter the number of people that attended this Sunday. Or the funds. So at the end of the year or five years, they can decide whether they're going to promote them to a bigger church or a better location. No. God calls the pastor, he's there. When you get married, you get married and hopefully you get promoted to another house. No, you're a pastor. Pastor stays with the sheep. He doesn't trade the sheep. He doesn't alter sheep. Either God called you or man called you. Who called you? Since the death of Pastor Chuck on October the 3rd, 2013, not all Calvary chapels are remaining true to the philosophy of ministry and model taught by Pastor Chuck. Chuck came out of denominations, the Foursquare Church. Now, some of them are going back into denominationalism by virtue of the fact of accepting ecumenicalism and emergentism. All right? But we're independent. We don't exchange funds. We don't. There's no lordship. Either God's in the ministry or he's not in the ministry. One of the two. And so the nature of Paul's call to ministry was despite his life as many of the Calvary Chapel pastors. Now those that continue in this, God will continue to direct and bless. Those that want to take hold of that ministry and alter it, that's up to them. They're free to do that. Notice thirdly, the end of 13 and 14. The nature of Paul's call into ministry was a gift. 
Paul obtained his call by mercy. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Notice the state of Paul was ignorance regarding the true nature of the gospel and Christ. Paul uses the word ignorance simply to mean not to know the truth or significance of something, be it through lack of knowledge, understanding, or self-righteous pride. That's how it's used. Paul's ignorance was not innocence. Paul's ignorance did not diminish his guilt. And Paul's ignorance was to distinguish it from sin that is presumptuous, willful sin, condemning the law. You know, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Well, the men that were crucified, they knew what they were doing. They were nailing some nails through his hands until a piece of wood. But what he meant is they didn't realize the significance of what their actions would affect them in the future. When we're young, we do dumb things, and we don't understand what we're doing. We don't understand the, the things, how it will affect our life, the consequences down the road. The word but shows the contrast of God's gift despite his past. Jesus prayed from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what we do, I said. In Luke 23, 34, the sphere of Paul's spiritual life was in unbelief, notice. It means lack of faith in trusting the proclamation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. This unbelief magnified the state of ignorance to the gospel. This unbelief manifested itself in opposition to the gospel. The sovereign goodness of God for Paul was mercy. Mercy, as you know, is related to one in misery, distress, receiving pity or compassion. Mercy, and the mercy of God is innate desire to pity, to come to the need of someone. In fact, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, that God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering. He told that to Jonah in Jonah 4, 2 about the Ninevites. Jonah didn't want the Ninevites to be saved. Mercy is one of God's attributes by which he imparts to us less than we deserve. In the law, you would be given 40 stripes in punishment. Minus one was to be merciful. 39. Over 40, you would humiliate a person. 40 was judgment. 39 was mercy. God has given to you and me and every minister this call mercy, less than we deserve. Mercy by God should never be thought of as condoning or permitting sin as foolishness. The mercies of God are described in the scriptures as the following way. Tender, great, sure, abundant, and new every morning. Aren't you glad? Notice Paul obtained his call by grace. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. The source of grace is our Lord. Grace is care. The basic idea is kindness bestowed on one who doesn't deserve it or merit it. It's a gift. Jesus is not only the source, but the channel of grace for man. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. He only begotten the Father full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. Jesus imparts to every man born again of his fullness, grace for grace in John 1, 16. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1, 17. 
Grace is imparted by the agent of the Holy Spirit. He is called the Spirit of Grace. Zechariah 12.10, Hebrews 10.29. The Father is the source. The Son is the channel. The agent is the Holy Spirit. All three working on the behalf of saving the believer and doing that transforming work. The sufficiency of grace is described as exceedingly abundant. It means super overflowing. The quality of possessing an excess of what is needed. More than enough. The object of God's grace is the sinner. Take note for salvation. Not angels. Not animals. Not even non-believers. Sinners who reject it. God doesn't force anybody to go to heaven. It is a source of salvation, justification, a call to ministry, our gift, and our strength. The overflowing potential of grace is greater than the overflowing potential of sin. Romans 5, 19-21. Where sin abounds, much more does grace abound. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, we read in Genesis 6, 8. The doctrine of grace begins in the Old Testament, not the New. Jonah was angry with God because he was gracious to the Ninevites. Again, Jonah 4.2. The early church continued in the grace of God, we're told, in Acts 13.43. Great place to continue. The New Testament describes grace as the following. Great, all abundant, all sufficient, glorious, rich, undeserved, and many, many other things. You see, the believer is commanded not to abuse the grace of God. Romans 6, 1, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, perish the thought, how should we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? We're not to frustrate the grace of God, Galatians 2, 1. We're not to pervert the grace of God, Jude verse 4. We're to stand in the grace of God, Romans 5, 2. We're to be strong in the grace of God, 2 Timothy 2, 1. We're to grow in the grace of God, 2 Peter 3.18. And yet you see much of the emergent church promoting so much more the life of the flesh, contrary to the gospel. Living a cultural Christianity as opposed to a heavenly Christianity here on earth. Simple. Notice Paul obtained his call with faith and love, which are in Christ. The word faith means trust, belief, a firm persuasion, a connection based on hearing. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen says. The word is used always of faith in God, Christ, and spiritual things. If my faith is going to be biblical, it isn't because I say it's biblical, is because I'm, it's, my faith points me back to the revelation of God's word. So my faith is based on what God has revealed about himself, sin, Satan, judgment, and redemption, and everything else. I agree with God. That makes my faith biblical. If my faith does not, if it contradicts the word of God, as to it, takes away from it, my faith is not biblical. It is just foolish. It is man's opinion. 
The word is always used of faith in God, Christ, and spiritual things. Ten times it appears in First Timothy as trust and firm persuasion. Nine times referring to Christianity, the faith with the article. The word agape love here, God's divine love for man. The attribute expressing God's very nature in First John 4, 8, many other places. God is love, agape. Distinct from man's love that is based upon his own benefit. His own desires, his flesh. This faith and love are a byproduct of the exceeding abundance of grace. God provides all things pertaining to life and godliness, we are told in 1 Peter 1, 3. He is the source. Faith for trusting God in every life situation. Love to respond in a godly manner. Far different than what we used to be. Paul proclaims we are saved by grace through faith and not of ourselves. The gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. And so this faith and love are in opposition to Paul's past unbelief and hatred for Christians. But even a good moral person that wouldn't do some of the things that Paul did, they're still as lost and they're still alienated from God. We have to judge people by the standard of the gospel, not the human standard of morality, ethics, or culture. The Bible transcends all of them. Paul says, knowing the terror of the Lord, he sought to persuade men in the faith. 2 Corinthians 5.11 The motive for men's souls was the love of God that constrained Paul and his fellow laborers. 2 Corinthians 5.14 Faith and love are often bind together in the scriptures. This faith and love are found in Christ Jesus alone. The source of grace is the gift of God. The phrase in Christ speaks of a real person. He took on flesh. God became man. The phrase in Christ speaks of a personal relationship, a commitment through repentance, agreeing with God that I'm a sinner. This is what the ministry is about. It's not to entertain you. It's not to provide programs for you and your children. It's for you to grow in Christ so that you can build your life with others and be a witness to the world. Too many people are looking at churches as some kind of corporation or entertainment park for them. Here, you take care of my kid. No, they're your kids. We only have them maybe three hours a week. They live with you. You need to be that example. You need to be that Minister to your family, man. You're the high priest of the home. The phrase in Christ speaks of an abiding relationship. Through the good times, through the bad times, through the scarce times, through the abundant times. During the last hours of John Knox, he woke from a slumber sign and he told his friend that he had just been tempted to believe that he had merited heaven and eternal blessedness by the faithful discharge of his ministry 
But blessed be God, he said, who has enabled me to beat down and quench the fiery darts by suggesting to me such passages of scripture as these. What hast thou that thou hast not received? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not I, but the grace of God which was in me. We have to fight our sin nature. The attacks of the enemy. The applause of people. The opinions of people for us or against us. You see, the pastors of Calvary Chapel recognized God's gift of mercy to call them into ministry. That's why God honored the movement. But everybody begins well, and will you continue? His pity and compassion to place them and not exalt themselves above others is key. The pastors of Calvary Chapel know the exceedingly abundant grace of God has extended to them for ministry better than anyone else. As we move on, we'll see the churches weren't open to the hippies. Now, I wasn't a hippie, but they weren't open to them. The long hair and everything else, the nominations, they're closing the doors to them. The pastor of Calvary Chapel, no. Not only for their own lives, but to impart to others freely as they had received. Pastors of Calvary Chapel understood their need to cultivate faith and love with the Lord on a daily basis to execute their ministry. Spending time in the word and prayer and fellowship so that God can feed his people. If you don't, then you will become impatient with God and start doing your own imaginary and clever things. And, and sometimes God removes his hand from the man or the movement. And finds another vessel. Pastors are to be humble servants serving their Lord and the people after the example of Christ. Listen to Paul. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and becoming in the likeness of man, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, emptied himself, not of his deity, but his glory, and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is my example. That is your example for ministry. We're never to be lords. We're to be servants of all. And so the nature of Paul's call to ministry was a gift, as was the call of all Calvary Chapel pastors. Paul, writing to Timothy, has revealed to us here three important facts about the nature of his call to the ministry that should be the same for every Calvary Chapel pastor if they continue or anybody else. Simple principles. Their call is to be divine. Their call is to be despite their life. And their call is to be a gift. That's what it is. No one can boast of it. You must remain at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's what ministry is, ladies and gentlemen. We as pastors here are not here for you to serve us. We're here to equip you for you to serve the Lord. 
We're not here for you to give us gifts. We're not here for you to do favors for us. We are here because God has called us. And to be faithful to give you the word of God until God takes us home or he removes us. That's what ministry is about. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Pray, Lord, for each of us, Lord, that we would have perspective that is biblical. We always look to you as the gift of ministry, Lord, to us. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. That's what we're talking the gospel. If you see yourself in need of salvation as a sinner before God, then that's the work of the Holy Spirit to convict you. Now he wants you to repent of your sins, to call upon him, that he would forgive you and make you a child of God. But only you can do that. No one can do it for you. Maybe you're over the internet. If you want to be saved, forgiven of your sins, this is your prayer to Jesus Christ, and he's going to save you right now. You can repeat it to him, not to us. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.